We're going to start, of course, with our first speaker. I think most of you know uh, Dr. Connie Benson, who's from University of California, San Diego. <clears throat> she is um, a world-renowned investigator in especially opportunistic infections over the years, in particular TB and MAC. Um, she works internationally now, as well as uh, in the San Diego area. Um, she's a board member of the IES USA, and, uh, and is going to talk to us today about uh, update from CROI. So we coordinate the conference so that um, we know the topics obviously that are going to be covered and what's going to be covered in those talks. And Connie's kind of got the task of providing that safety net of all the other topics that weren't covered in these other talks. So this is the potpourri coming first. So welcome, Connie. Thank you, Mike, and thanks to Henry and Mike for inviting me to join you today. So as Mike said, I'm going to be talking about updates from presentations at CROI. I'm going to be focusing on those topics that, as Mike said, are not going to be covered by other speakers today. And those are generally going to be topics related to pre-exposure prophylaxis, to novel or new investigational drugs and regimens, and risk for cardiovascular disease. So my financial relationships with commercial entities and learning objectives you can read at your leisure in the syllabus, but I'd like to start off with a little bit of good news about the HIV epidemic in the United States. And these are new data from the CDC this year on new HIV infections, and what you can see based on their estimates is that over the years of 2008 through 2014, we've seen an overall 18% decline in the estimated number of annual new infections in the US, with the highest proportion seen in those who are, injecting, who are injecting drugs, but also in many of the other risk groups associated with HIV. And this has been true in many of the major metropolitan areas around the country that have been most involved in the HIV epidemic. The only bad news in the data presented by the CDC has been in that subgroup of MSM, gay and bisexual men aged 25 to 34 years, where we're seeing an, in the red dotted line still an increase in the number of new infections in that subgroup of individuals. And this has largely been uh, the result of increasing case rates among Latino or Hispanic individuals in the US continuing decreases seen in white uh, MSM and stable in African Americans. So much of that uh, decrease in overall cases of new HIV infections may has been related both to the widespread availability now of effective antiretroviral therapy and to the ongoing rollout of pre-exposure prophylaxis. So some important studies were presented in relationship to PrEP at Croy this year. The first of these was a little bit of bad news. And as you know from many of the studies done in MSM populations, when people are fully adherent to their PrEP regimens and when they achieve therapeutic concentrations of tenofovir in plasma, the risk of acquiring HIV infection is extremely low. But one thing we've all been worried a little bit about is whether individuals can break through even if they have therapeutic 
concentrations of tenofovir and FTC. And this is a study presented from Amsterdam. This was a young man who was enrolled in an ongoing PrEP study in Amsterdam and started on tenofovir and FTC and was followed serially over the course of that study. So you can see from the table, and I can't really turn my head very well to highlight here, so I hope you can see the slides. But over the course of that study, this gentleman had extremely high rates of sexual exposure and high-risk sexual exposure with condomless anal sex. At months six and eight in the study, tenofovir levels were obtained and were greater than what we considered to be therapeutic at both of those time points. So he was fully adherent and had therapeutic levels, but at month eight developed fever and dysuria. His clinicians obtained an HIV antibody and antigen test. The antibody was positive, but the antigen test and viral loads were negative, leading to an indeterminate determination. But they were concerned, so they stopped PrEP in this individual, and then three weeks later, he had uh, HIV RNA detectable at 40,000 copies and continued to rise thereafter. So this was an individual who developed an acute infection in the presence of high tenofovir levels in plasma. And this is a cautionary note to those of us that High levels of adherence and concentrations in the plasma that are therapeutic may still not be enough in individuals with extremely high-risk sexual behaviors. On the converse side, in women, there's been a lot of attention paid to the fact that many of the PrEP studies have not been as successful in women as have been reported in men. This was a study attempting to explain some of the results with the Caprisa 004 topical tenofovir gel study, which was a failure. And in this subset of individuals, 41 healthy, non-pregnant, seronegative women were treated with daily tenofovir gel or film for seven days. They were sampled both at baseline and before their seventh dose and then two hours after their seventh dose with cervical, vaginal, and plasma concentrations uh, to look at concentrations of tenofovir. They were also rated on the basis of a Nugent score. For those of you who don't remember what that is, it's actually a score done on the basis of a gram stain of vaginal secretions looking at the numbers of lactobacillus species and if there was lactobacillus predominance, that's a score of zero to three, meaning normal vaginal flora and a score of seven to 10 is indicative of replacement of normal lactobacillus species with other gram-negative rods indicative of bacterial vaginosis. And what the investigators in this study showed was that tenofovir levels in cervical and vaginal fluid and plasma concentrations were associated with bacterial vaginosis in lower levels of tenofovir seen in those with the highest Nugent score and those who had normal lactobacillus levels actually had higher local levels of tenofovir. And this is an important finding that may have explained the reason why topical tenofovir gel or film failed in PrEP studies. Conversely, investigators also looked at oral or systemic PrEP in this context and looking at a subset of individuals in the 
the PARTNERS PREP study, which was a study in HIV uninfected women of infected male partners who were randomized to receive tenofovir or tenofovir plus FTC once daily compared with placebo and followed for 36 months. And what you can see from this slide, based on Nugent score again, with seven to 10 being evidence of bacterial vaginosis and zero to three being normal vaginal flora, there was no effect on PrEP efficacy when individuals were treated with systemic uh, tenofovir and FTC. And the differences in uh, PrEP activity were the same across all three uh, tertiles or uh, all three categories of the Nugent score, so no significant differences, suggesting that the effect of bacterial microbiome was most prevalent in topical therapies and didn't translate over to systemic PrEP therapies. So now I'm gonna move on to novel or new investigational drugs and regimens that were presented at CROI and based on category, I'll start with the integrase inhibitor class. And a very important study that was presented was uh, the study of Bictegravir, which is a novel integrase inhibitor strand transfer inhibitor, which is administered once daily and unboosted, unlike Elvitegravir. It is active against wild-type HIV and insti-resistant variants, has a long half-life of 18 hours, low potential for drug interactions on the basis of non-boosting, and in a pilot study of monotherapy given for 10 days, there was rapid dose-dependent decrease in HIV RNA of greater than two logs. It's now being co-formulated with TAF and FTC and was studied in a phase two randomized clinical trial that was placebo controlled, comparing Bictegravir and TAF FTC in combination with Dolutegravir, 50 milligrams plus TAF and FTC, both regimens given once daily. In this ART naive population, the safety data suggested that both arms were well tolerated through 48 weeks. The most common adverse events were diarrhea and nausea. There were no serious adverse events or deaths in the study. Both drugs were associated with a modest increase in serum creatinine that we know is due to decreased creatinine secretion, not due to actual renal toxicity. And only one patient had to stop therapy at week 24 for an urticarial reaction. This is the money slide given in a tabular formulation. At week 24, the primary endpoint virologic success rates showed a modest difference with Bictegravir being 97% suppression to less than 50 copies while the dolutegravir arm was 94%. This was a treatment difference of only about 2.9% and was not statistically significant. Week 48, secondary endpoint similar, although there starts to be a little bit of more difference between the two regimens in terms of treatment difference. And you can see this graphically on the slide with the uh, the green part representing Bictegravir and the gray representing Dolutegravir, but still very good activity of the novel compound in comparison to Dolutegravir. Virologic failure rates were the same and overall a good result for Bictegravir as an unboosted uh, agent that is active against treatment uh, variants that are resistant to integrase inhibitors. 
Moving on to the NNRTI class, there's been quite a bit of activity in this class with new drug development as well. Another important study presented this year was, were the combined results of the SWORD 1 and 2 studies, which are the same studies, one in the US and this side of the ocean and the other in Europe. And this was a switch study for individuals who are fully suppressed for at least a year to less than 50 copies on a current antiretroviral therapy regimen, either first or second line regimen. And patients enrolled in this study were randomized to switch to dolutegravir and rilpivirine immediately and or to continue their baseline antiretroviral therapy. And then at the end of one year of treatment, they individuals who are an early switch continued on that regimen if they were fully suppressed and those who uh, were on continued baseline ART then switched to dolutegravir and rilpivirine and then both groups are being followed out to week 148. What you can see from this slide is the week 48 primary endpoint based on that initial switch versus continuation of baseline therapy and you don't have to be uh, a genius to figure out that those bars are exactly the same. So this study showed that suppressive therapy with continuing your own treatment or your baseline treatment compared to a two-drug regimen of dolutegravir and rilpivirine was equal to the baseline regimen in terms of full suppression. One patient developed confirmed virologic failure and was withdrawn at week 36 in the dolutegravir and rilpivirine arm, and this individual had been documented to be non-adherent at the time of virologic failure, but resuppressed after being put back on rilpivirine and dolutegravir, and there was no detection of INSTI resistance in the study. Safety outcomes from the study did show a little bit of a splay in terms of differences, although roughly comparable in terms of adverse event rates with, them, with a higher rate of drug-related grade one and two adverse events at the time of the switch um, in both groups, the early versus delayed switch, and a slightly higher weight rate of withdrawal for adverse events after the switch. 4% versus less than 1% on, in, for those who had maintained their baseline regimens. There were no changes in serum lipid values from baseline to week 48 in either treatment arm, as you might expect. The next study, looking at NNRTIs, were, were the results of the DRIVE study. I have no idea what these acronyms are uh, representing anymore, but they sound good. SWORD and DRIVE, they're very aggressive names. But this is a study of doravirine compared with darunavir-ritonavir. Doravirine is another investigational NNRTI that is potent activity against many NNRTI-resistant variants, including those with the K103N, a Y181C, G190A, and various combinations thereof. It's got a long half-life, can be used once daily dosing, is associated with minimal drug-drug interactions, and in previous studies had been shown to have a better safety profile in terms of central nervous system events when compared to efavirenz. 
The primary endpoint of this study is seen here, was a largely treatment-naive population who had no underlying or baseline drug genotypic resistance to the NNRTI class. And comparing a 100 milligram daily dose of doravirine with darunavir-ritonavir given once daily in combination with NRTIs that were chosen by the investigators. And this slide summarizes the virologic result, results of the study, basically showing completely overlapping curves. So at the end of week 48, those who were fully suppressed on both regimens were between 80 and 84%, and the overall virologic response and non-response were quite similar. So uh, comparable to uh, darunavir-ritonavir-containing regimen in this patient population. There was a trend toward somewhat greater e efficacy in the doravirine arm in those who had very high baseline viral loads of greater than 500,000 copies or very low CD4 counts of less than 50 in the study, but we'll need to look at those data as they continue to play out over time in the study. Also, with regard to clinical adverse events, the regimens, too, were very comparable with overall adverse event rates being similar serious adverse event rates being similar, and the only real difference between the two was in GI intolerance with slightly higher rates in the, in the darunavir ritonavir arm, as you might expect in any regimen given with ritonavir. In uh, other specific outcomes, also as you might expect, the week 48 fasting lipid levels were decreased in the doravirine arm, and increased in the darunavir-ritonavir arm, uh, particularly as compared with LDL cholesterol and non-HDL cholesterol levels. There was no genotypic or phenotypic drug resistance that emerged to doravirine or darunavir-ritonavir during the study. So again, another NNRTI class drug that looks very promising for future regimens. Again, in this class, a third new drug that's under development is L-sulfavirine, which is, again, another novel NNRTI that can be administered once daily. It's a prodrug of, uh, of another investigational drug, and this one has a half-life of eight days. So, again, making the case of long-acting agents in development. Ten-day monotherapy studies with this agent also showed uh, greater than two log decrease in HIV RNA and a 20 milligram once daily dose was chosen to move in to phase 2B randomized clinical trial that was reported at CROI. And this compared L-sulfavirine 20 milligrams once daily in combination with tenofovir and FTC and compared to efavirenz as the control arm in combination with tenofovir and FTC. In this tabular format, which was presented at CROI is a little bit different uh, way of looking at it in terms of median HIV RNA levels, but suffice it to say that the proportion of individuals with less than 50 copies at week 48 across all participants was a little bit higher in the L-sulfavirine group compared to efavirenz, and this was particularly explained by those individuals who had baseline HIV RNA levels of greater than 100,000 copies. So the greatest difference between the two arms were in those individuals with higher viral loads at baseline. 
In terms of the safety profile, and on the right-hand side of your slide, the blue is the L-sulfavirine and yellow the efavirenz arms. You can see based on the uh, way they chose to present it, it makes it look like there's a huge difference between the two arms. There really wasn't. But um, the overall safety profile showed, showing a slightly higher rate of all adverse events in the efavirenz arm, grade three and four events higher in the efavirenz arm, skin rash higher, and adverse events that required treatment discontinuation higher with the efavirenz containing regimen, but not really much difference in terms of CNS adverse events. So this is a compound we'll have to see play out in further clinical trials before we can make a, a firm determination about its role. So moving on to another class of investigational drugs, the attachment inhibitors. There was a very interesting compound that got a lot of attention at CROI, and that was uh, TMB301. Um, for those of you who are having trouble <laughs> pronouncing the panoply of monoclonal antibodies that have exploded on the scene in medicine these days, um, I'll make an attempt. Ibolizumab, in this particular compound, is a humanized monoclonal antibody to CD4 receptors, and it blocks the CD4 cell post-attachment at entry for HIV. In a small, single-arm, open-label study of patients with multidrug-resistant HIV, this compound was administered in a 2,000 milligram intravenous dose at, uh, at day seven, which was the loading dose, and then individuals continued their failing antiretroviral therapy regimen for the first two weeks. The primary endpoint was that day 14 look at the data, and then patients were started on what was considered a maintenance dose of the monoclonal antibody, which was a second dose given IV on day 21, and then continued administration every two weeks of the monoclonal antibody, combined with a switch to optimize background therapy. A lot of people criticized the study design, thinking, how can you know that this was the effect of the monoclonal antibody if you also switched background therapy? But we have two looks at the data, and you can make your own determination. And week 24, the outcomes were looked at in several ways. One, uh, greater than one log decline in HIV RNA, a greater than two log decline in HIV RNA, and the proportion of individuals who had less than 200 or less than 50 copies of HIV RNA. And as you can see, about 50% of individuals met all of those criteria of treatment response. Although there was a slightly different response depending on whether they started with very low CD4 counts or very high viral loads. So this got a lot of attention because the vast majority of these individuals really did have multi-drug resistant virus that was resistant to all drugs, currently available drugs, in three or more classes of agents. So it was a pretty drug resistant group and a 50% response is substantial. Um, the drug wasn't without adverse events, effects, however. Grade three and four serious adverse events were seen, although these mostly were not clinically significant in terms of um, 
adverse events that required treatment discontinuation. They were mostly seen in individuals who had very low CD4 counts. There were four deaths in the study, but none of these were related to study drug. The deaths were due to progression of underlying HIV disease or liver failure and no antibodies to this agent were detected, so it didn't induce antibody production. So I think this is a compound we'll continue to see in clinical trials for drug-resistant virus, but an interesting compound nevertheless. The, other, the next group of drugs I'm going to talk about are ones that really don't have a lot of clinical information available about them. They're earlier in the pipeline, and whether they will make it to clinical practice is hard to assess at this point, but novel compounds nevertheless. The first of these is a new class of drugs, first in class with picomolar activity in, in terms of an inhibition of HIV capsid. The capsid inhibition inhibitor works at multiple steps in the HIV replication cycle, both at capsid core assembly and at nuclear translocation being the principal targets. It has high potency against all major HIV subtypes, including resistant mutants of every other drug class, and it's it sits in a conserved inhibitor binding site, so it looks like it may be relatively resistant to developing uh, resistant mutants in and of itself. A compound has been selected with relatively high potency, low clearance, and is long-acting, and maybe we'll see results in clinical trials in the near future. EFDA is a novel NRTI class of drugs, although it works a little differently than the classic non-nucleoside rever nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors by inhibiting the translocation step in, in reverse transcription. It's highly active against both HIV-1 and HIV-2 at nanomolar concentrations and particularly active against the K65R and the K65RQ151 complex mutants that are actually hypersusceptible to this agent. Single 10 milligram oral dose was active for more than 10 days with a median viral load reduction of almost two logs with this agent in monotherapy studies. And over here on the far right, or far right side of the slide is an attempt to put it into long-acting nanoformulations, and with this particular compound, they see active drug, drug levels above the EC50 for the organism out to 180 days. So how that will, will evolve in clinical practice remains to be established, but a very interesting compound nevertheless. Another novel NRTI that was presented at CROI this year is another uh, Gilead compound, GS9131, being developed for two reasons, low potential for mitochondrial toxicity and renal accumulation also very low. It has broad activity against HIV 1 and 2 and is very active against multiple NRTI-resistant mutants of almost every, every type, including those with multiple TAMs and the T69 insertion complex. The protease inhibitor class continues to also be a target of new drug development. There is one, GSPI1, a novel potent PI that has a high resistance barrier and the potential for once daily oral dosing without boosting. 
in, this is just very in vitro data in red showing you mutants that are resistant to darunavir and atazanavir, and in blue showing that the GSPI1 compound is still active against these darunavir and atazanavir uh, resistant mutants. Again, not much clinical information about the compound. And I'm going to finish my uh, talk this morning talking about some cardiovascular disease issues that were presented at CROI. Um, the first of these, again, another monoclonal antibody, is attempting to address those individuals with cardiovascular disease in HIV infection beyond, going beyond the treatment of traditional risk factors such as lipid-lowering compounds. As you know, those individuals, individuals with HIV infection continue to be at increased risk, and inflammation is thought to be one of the factors that plays out in the pathogenesis of HIV-related cardiovascular disease. So targeting this, Investigators looked at a human IL-1 beta antibody that binds to and blocks the interaction of cytokines with type 1 and 2 receptors. And this resulted in a rapid and sustained inhibition of inflammation in an open-label trial in HIV-infected individuals who were on suppressive ART and had at least one risk factor for cardiovascular disease. They were just given one subcutaneous dose of this monoclonal antibody, and then at week four and week eight had measurements of inflammatory markers, and what was seen in the study was a significant reduction in IL-6, in high-sensitivity CRP, in soluble CD163, a monocyte activation marker, and in measures of arterial inflammation. So a single dose of canakinumab was well-tolerated, resulted in significant reduction in inflammatory markers, had no impact on T-cell activation, and significantly reduced arterial inflammation. And this is now moving forward into a randomized placebo-controlled trial with more than one dose. Another interesting concept that played out at CROI was the issue of hyperbilirubinemia. Hyperbilirubinemia has been associated with some anti-atherogenic properties, such as lower lipid levels, reduced oxidative stress, and inhibition of platelet activity. And investigators in the VA cohort study, in an observational way, looked at hyperbilirubinemia and its association with heart failure, acute MI, ischemic stroke, and the combination of these as a cardiovascular disease event in both those with and without liver disease. And although the numbers here will be hard to read from the back of the room, I'll just summarize the results, and that showed that incremental increases in bilirubin level were each associated with a decrease in cardiovascular disease before and after adjusting for other confounders or other factors associated with cardiovascular disease. And although the investigators could not determine whether this was an association as a surrogate marker or a causal association, they did show that in each individual event, heart failure, MI, ischemic stroke, and the combination of cardiovascular disease, all three, there was an incremental benefit of higher bilirubin levels in these individuals. So again, another observation that requires more explanation and further evaluation. 
as you know, the DAD cohort study has continued their efforts to look at modern antiretroviral therapy and their contribution to cardiovascular disease risk. And like many other studies before it, they've looked at both the acute incidence of cardiovascular events and the cumulative incidence based on the use of the drug. And in this uh, cohort study, the cumulative use of darunavir-ritonavir, but not atazanavir-ritonavir, was independently associated with a small but gradually increasing risk of cardiovascular disease over five years of exposure. And it was interesting putting that together with the hyperbilirubinemia story. The VA cohort study couldn't tease that effect out, but this one may be able to look at the bilirubin effect of atazanavir itself over time. And then I'll finish off by one important point that I think we all need to be cognizant of. Although the drugs we use to treat HIV and HIV itself are associated with modest increases in cardiovascular disease risk, the thing to remember and what was further highlighted by this retrospective meta-analysis of HIV-infected adults who had confirmed MIs in the NA Accord study, a 40% MI reduction rate was associated just with those simple things like, and I say simple um, sarcastically, smoking cessation, reduction in total cholesterol, or treatment of hypertension irrespective of HIV infection and irrespective of BMI. So I think making the point that treating the traditional risk factors has a greater impact than just HIV events in and of themselves. So I'm gonna finish by summarizing what I've talked about today. There's a complex role of the genital tract microbiome in women on the effectiveness of PrEP, although this seems to be limited to the topical use of tenofovir gel and abrogated when oral or systemic therapy is used. PrEP failures may occur in people who are have therapeutic tenofovir levels uh, if they're engaged in extremely high-risk sexual activity. The pipeline for novel investigational drugs and regimens is relatively robust with drugs, particularly in tho those drugs that have long-acting uh, trajectories. And cardiovascular disease is still a target for us, both interventions to reduce the risk and explaining some of the issues we need to do in terms of reducing traditional risk factors. And I'll end there. Very nice review, Connie. And uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to start with, first off, um, there are two ways to ask questions, or maybe three. You can just scream, or you can go to the microphones over here or fill out a question card and then folks are coming around and picking up uh, your questions and I can read them. Before we get into the questions directly from the audience, uh, I know you, we didn't give you uh, maybe totally enough time to go through everything. So one thing we, we aren't gonna touch on at the meeting otherwise is tuberculosis. So I know there were a couple things at the meeting that um, uh, were presented that were important to that field. Maybe you could summarize those for us real quick. <laughs> No, I was unprepared for that. Okay. So, 
I, I think one important study that was presented related to tuberculosis at the meeting was preemptive therapy with corticosteroids for prevention of TB-associated iris, and I found that to be a very interesting study suggesting that you could reduce the risk of and the occurrence of iris events in people with active TB when you combined both anti-TB therapy, antiretroviral therapy, and preemptive corticosteroids. Yeah. So that, to me, was, I think, a, a novel randomized controlled trial and really uh, produced some important events. Right, and one thing I think that we've talked about a lot that you touched on some is that I thought one of the really important studies, uh, just to highlight this again, is the in the integrase inhibitor class, um, uh, some people have been advocating the use of dalutegravir as a monotherapy, and uh, bottom line is it's it's not ready for prime time in that way. Um, yeah, I, I, that particular study was it was a study in healthy volunteers, specifically looking at the pharmacokinetics of INH and rifapentine given together with dalutegravir. And the purpose was to look at the 12-week INH rifapentine regimen for treatment of latent TB infection. These were healthy volunteers, and after four patients were enrolled in the study, it was stopped prematurely because three of the four individuals developed a rifapentine, what was assumed to be a rifapentine hypersensitivity reaction. And one of those were particular, was a particularly severe reaction that put a person into the hospital uh, in the intensive care unit for a short period of time. It's not clear whether the INH played into that or mm -hmm. whether it was all related to rifapentine or what role the dolutegravir had in the hypersensitivity reaction. So those data are being uh, worked on now. Henry, you might have more information about it, but was done at the NIH Clinical Center, and a uh, very important study that almost didn't get presented, but some, one of us resurrected it from uh, the submitted abstracts, so because of, it was thought to be right. clinically it's one of the advantages of having one of the people from the core organizing committee uh, come present, you get the inside scoop, it's uh, inside baseball. Um, so tenofovir FTC is PrEP, um, somebody who seroconverts while on PrEP, um, does that mean they for sure are infected with a virus resistant to either TDF or FTC? Well, if you take the message away from the study I just presented, um, a person who developed an acute HIV infection while on PrEP, he was fully adherent and had therapeutic tenofovir diphosphate levels in the plasma at the time of that seroconversion or acute infection and did not have tenofovir-resistant variant as his infecting virus. So I don't think you can necessarily say that it means that you've broken through with the tenofovir-resistant isolate. Right. And then similarly, this is another prep question. Um, what, what's the thought about um, someone who's got a mild elevation in serum creatinine uh, and some reduction in EGFR and putting them on PrEP? Is it, is it a contraindication? Do you do it with just sort of closer monitoring? Is there any thought you have about what to do in that setting? 
Well, I think that's a difficult question because you're talking about an HIV uninfected person and somebody that has the potential for being harmed by the therapy that you're giving them. Um, depends, I guess, on what you mean by modest. I think right. if you followed guidelines, you would say, no, that may not be a best candidate. But you could use PrEP with much more yeah. careful monitoring than you ordinarily would do. So I if think that's a, you need to use your I clinical think, Yeah, I think the guidelines say uh, EGFR greater than 60, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, but if it's in between 60 and 70, you're going to be monitoring that patient a lot more carefully uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's somebody you're going to really uh, kind of keep up with. Um, any other, uh, that's all the questions that I had from the audience, a little surprising. Um, go to the microphone if you have something you're thinking about. Um, also, for those of you on the far sides, if you're having trouble seeing the screen, there's still a few seats up here in front, um, at least two, uh, that you might be able to see a little better. Um, and there's also seats in the balcony if, you, if you'd like. Um, is there anything else that, um, that you personally thought was um, groundbreaking either in the basic science realm or um, any of the talks that you thought were particularly uh, striking to, from the presentations you saw? Well, I think a lot of the data that were, uh, I think, important data I've tried to cover. Yeah. Um, obviously, we all, uh, when we do these kinds of updates, we kind of focus on the presentations that are really new and novel things. Mm -hmm. But just like every field, when there's incremental advances being described in a conference, sometimes they don't get a lot of big play and a lot of attention, but they're really meaningful in the context of moving the field forward. So I think there were many things that I thought had incremental benefit in how we understand how things work. But if, but if you're talking about kind of big breakthrough right. types of advances, there wasn't anything particular that stood out to yeah, me. One how thing, about you? Yeah, I was going to say one thing that, that I thought was instructive, and uh, there are a lot of talks obviously on cure. Take home point, there's nothing really there yet. Um, but uh, an idea that I hadn't thought of before that has been bandied about among the basic scientists is this notion of the germinal center of the lymph node. Um, that it, it is a bit of a protected sanctuary against antiretroviral therapy, theoretically. And, and there's, it's, think of it like um, the wall around the, um, um, the, the germinal center is almost like a blood-brain barrier is the way I took it. But, I've always thought of germinal centers and lymph nodes as being a B cell haven, and it is. But there are also T cells that get in there, and the ability to kill of T killer cells to get in and um, go and destroy uh, residually infected, uh, latently infected uh, CD4 cells is somewhat impaired. And so some of the some of the strategies that are being developed are trying to find ways to uh, break into uh, that uh, sanctuary, if you will, and using Trojan horse type technologies and that type of thing. I thought that was pretty interesting as an approach. Well, and, and interesting that you say that. This person who broke through uh, with good plasma levels of tenofovir, one of the things that's being looked at in that individual because of the high risk of 
sexual activity is whether the germinal centers and lymph node, lymphoid tissue of the GI tract, right. in addition to being a sanctuary site, right. if you will, may also be a sanctuary site where drug penetration may not occur at the same degree as we expect to see in other areas of the body. So that's one of the things they're looking at in that failure of PrEP story. Yep. So the, another thing uh, that you have to, at your disposal on the ISUSA website, which you go to for all your, so your handouts here, but also your CME, there's uh, uh, topics in HIV or uh, uh, antiviral therapy, topics in antiviral therapy, summaries of the meeting written, and those are already posted online that are in different realms, and they're really helpful. Uh, they not only include summaries of the presentation, they have the references and where you can get them, and you can go pull the actual abstract that's full, freely available to you, even if you didn't attend the meeting. So that's, uh, that's something that's available for you as, as you go through. Okay, not seeing any other questions. Thank you very much, Connie, great job. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk some more about the, um, the clinical meaning of a lot of these data and the cases section that comes up after this next talk.